0: Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale.
1: Squeaky Clean listeners, I bet you're wondering where Ben Stockdale is.
0: I'm I'm right here, Jarvis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, my name is Jarvis Arrington and I'm the new podcast intern here at the Squeaky Clean Energy.
0: <laughs> yeah. we're, glad, we're glad to have you We're still working on the name Yeah, I've
1: got to say it twice I'm so excited yeah.
0: <laughs> But you know, we, we, he'll, he'll learn as we keep going No, Jarvis is an amazing intern Really wanted to get him on the pod today So thanks for introducing the show, Jarvis Well, thank
1: you so much for having
0: me And and what are you doing here at Squeaky Clean Besides uh, mispronouncing our name? Yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, besides mispronouncing our name My goal is to uh, find out what our market is And try to capitalize on that
0: Awesome, well, I think that our, our, our market is largely uh, really nerdy clean energy advocates so. I, I think that's pretty accurate <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> definitely have to agree with that and and what are we talking about on today's show
1: Jarvis so today um, on the show we're talking to Tom beam who is one of NCSEAs contract lobbyists and we're doing a recap on the 2019
0: long legislative session great and this show is actually going to be a part one, part two. So we're releasing part one, be on the lookout for part two so that you can get the whole conversation. We're breaking it up so that you can listen to the first episode on your drive to work and you can listen to episode two on the way back. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, without further ado, let's jump right into the show. I'm ready for it. Hey.
1: Clean energy woop clean <laughs> energy ah.
0: Our guest today has worked as an advocate for clean energy and protection of public health and natural resources for the last 30 years. He has lobbied for NCSEA since 2005, and in that capacity has been part of the campaigns to establish and defend landmark clean energy policies like the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standard and other policies to promote the adoption and growth of renewable energy and energy efficiency in North Carolina. We are so excited to have him on the pod today. friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's guest, Tom B. Tom, welcome to the pod.
2: Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, after the legislative session, I think that there were so many things that circulated during the session that, you know, it's important to take stock of everything that happened, come together, digest it, talk about it to our listeners, and uh, that's what we're here to do today. So, you know, it's a legislative recap. We're going to kind of give a high-level overview of a lot of the clean energy issues and policies that we're going through the General Assembly, and uh, let's jump right into it, shall we? Yes, sir. So could you give us a basic structure of the General Assembly for those who are a little less familiar with North Carolina and even for those who live in North Carolina but need a refresher?
2: Yeah, I'd have be happy to do that, Ben. Um in North Carolina, uh, we uh, continue to uh, operate on under the fiction that we have a citizen uh, legislature. And what that really means is that it is uh, set up to be a part-time legislature. And the way that they've achieved that is they have set up a biennium uh, process. And uh, what that means is that uh, every two years, so uh, starting right after the election, in January, North Carolina's legislature meets and they adopt the main business of the state, which is the budget for the next two years. And so, in the first year, the long session, which we've just gotten, are about to get out of, um, they adopted a uh, uh, budget for uh, the two-year uh, period. And then, next May in 2020. The legislature will come back in in May, and the notional reason that they're there is to reconcile the budget, the second year of the budget that they passed, uh, to take into account uh, the differences in revenues or expenditures from what they uh, based the two-year budget on.
0: And so can you give us a little bit of insight into the political makeup of the General Assembly and where we've been and where we are now?
2: Uh, The North Carolina General Assembly is, uh, both houses are controlled by uh, a majority of Republicans. Um, The thing that's different in the past uh, two years is that we've gone from a period in which the uh, Republicans enjoyed a supermajority, meaning that uh, if the governor vetoed a piece of legislation, that they could override that veto at will, to uh, today's situation where they have a simple majority, which means as long as the Democrats can hold their votes, uh, if the governor vetoes a bill, then his veto is likely to stand. So a perfect example is uh, we were just talking about the uh, uh, idealized uh, version of how the biennial budget project works. Uh, This year, the House and Senate uh, eventually worked out their differences and passed a budget which the governor felt uh, was flawed in two basic ways. One, it did not expand Medicaid, Medicaid. And secondly, it didn't give uh, big enough raises to teachers. And for that, th- that and other reasons, he vetoed the budget. Um, in the uh, House, uh, he, in both chambers, the, uh, uh, the votes were not there to override the uh, governor's veto. Uh, in the House, uh, in a controversial uh, move, The uh, Republican majority had a snap vote uh, on a morning when most of the Democrats were not on the floor and overrode the governor's uh, veto there. But that has uh, still left the veto intact in the Senate, where they're just within a vote or two of being able to override the governor's uh, veto But the uh, Senate Democrats have uh, held together as a uh, caucus and have uh, made sure that all of their members are there each time that there's going to be a voting session.
0: Well, let's start talking about legislation with a high note, because House Bill 329 was really one of the bright spots of this legislative session. It was filed on March 29th by Representatives Zoka, Arp, Heinig, and Warren. It was originally a very short bill. What was in that original bill, Tom?
2: The core of this bill is really a very simple idea. In North Carolina, uh, we have what's called a regulated monopoly system for energy or electricity uh, generation. And what the deal is for the utilities is that they are given a monopoly in a service area, and in return for that, they must serve every customer in that area. It's a very important uh, structure to the deployment of uh, power and electricity throughout North Carolina in its day. But it has uh, become an obstacle to uh, progress in in certain areas, and in this bill, one of those was addressed. Because the uh, utilities are given a monopoly within their service area, the uh, EV charging stations, that business has uh, struggled to uh, really get a foothold. And the reason is this, is that in order to be able to have certainty in how much revenue you're going to generate from a charging station, you have to be able to sell that energy by the kilowatt hour. The workaround that they've used in North Carolina, because they weren't allowed to sell uh, energy by the hour, was that they simply charged for the space. But that's a very uh, squishy way to measure how much it costs them. And therefore, they weren't able to get rigorous enough uh, estimates of what their revenue is going to be in order to finance those charging stations.
0: Because, you know, a Nissan LEAF would suck up electricity at a different rate than, than a Tesla, right? And that was one of the issues was that, you know, you're paying for 30 minutes at a charging station, but depending on what car you have, you get a different rate of electricity.
2: Right, exactly. And that would be leave... Uh, the main challenge there would be that someone that wanted to deploy EV charging stations uh, would not be able on the basis of that much variation in what their revenue was going to be to get financing for it. And so Senate Bill, excuse me, House Bill uh, 329, the core of it was to make an exception for charging stations to the utilities monopoly in their service area so that, that's a key obstacle, regulatory obstacle, that has now been moved uh, out of the way uh, to, uh, to at least create the possibility for third parties to go into the business of uh, deploying EV charging stations. Uh, It's important to realize, as in so many areas of uh, energy policy, that this is one key thing. This was the kind of obstacle that could uh, stop deployment of EV stations for the most part. But there's also other issues like uh, the issue of you have to both have enough electric vehicles on the road to uh, generate enough business to make uh, EV charging stations pay, and you have to have enough EV charging stations uh, out there on the landscape that people can drive electric vehicles and feel confident that they're going to be able to charge up just like they now are confident that they can gas up.
0: So this bill, as it, as it was it originally filed, just included this provision for EV charging. It evolved into an omnibus bill. Can you just briefly tell us what else is in 329.
2: Well, the main other thing that's in 329 is a stakeholder process to study the decommissioning of utility-scale solar uh, farms. And uh, that is, that stakeholder process is ongoing now, uh, and it's being uh, moderated or uh, led by the uh, Department of Environmental Quality. And it's got all the stakeholders there, the, of course, utility scale uh, solar developers and a variety of others uh, to parse through what are the real issues involved in decommissioning and what is adequate to uh, provide for the time when the time comes that they are decommissioned and what is over uh, regulation that just serves as an undue burden on uh, solar, uh, utility scale solar uh, farms.
0: So you would say that this bill was a victory?
2: It was a victory, without a doubt.
0: Awesome. Great. Well, check one for the home team. Moving right along. House Bill 330. Now, this bill was filed by Representative Zoka, Representative Dean Arp, Representative Steve Ross, and Chris Humphrey. This bill is going to continue to expand North Carolina's commitment to reducing energy consumption. Tom, what does this bill do?
2: It raises the target the goal that uh, state buildings, state-owned buildings, must uh, reach for energy efficiency from 30 percent, which has already been achieved, to 40 percent. Um, bu- buildings are sometimes called the battleship of uh, energy consumers because uh, they are such tremendous uh, users of energy. So if for every percentage of efficiency that you get out of uh, buildings, the benefit in terms of the energy load as a whole is tremendous. And that's, this is an uh, effort to have the state government uh, lead by example. And also there's a state government owns a lot of uh, buildings. And so there's a a real uh, gain in terms of reducing uh, load going forward for energy. This
0: bill is anticipated to avoid nearly $1.1 billion in utility costs between 2018 and 25 and net North Carolina taxpayers over $250 million in savings. So it seems like a great bill. It reads like a great bill. But why didn't it really pick up any traction during this session?
2: Well, I think the key is uh, that uh, there's uh, skepticism on the Senate side, Uh, which I honestly, the uh, motivation for that skepticism is unclear to me. Um, The uh, couple of key senators uh, felt it was unnecessary. Uh, I think that there's also some uh, more discussion that uh, needs to be had uh, between the uh, companies that uh, typically contract out to achieve those kind of energy savings and the uh, state agencies and entities that Use uh, that would be use those energy efficiency uh, strategies, Um, but that's what the time between the long session and the short session is uh, often used for. Is to when a piece of legislation like this has uh, stalled, to come get the interested parties together, try and uh, work out any uh, problems that may exist, and also it gives you more opportunity to make the case to uh, legislators that are hesitant, like uh, some of the senators. Uh, that this is really a key piece of legislation, which it is.
0: So, Tom, this legislative session was a good session for clean energy. I think most people would agree with that. But there were some attacks on clean energy that are important to note. Can you go over some of those attacks on clean energy?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. And uh, let me say that uh, Attacks on clean energy have been uh, a fact of life uh, for the last decade, and so these uh, bills that we're about to discuss are one. uh, They are some of the ways in which uh, critics of uh, renewable energy have sought to undermine uh, renewable energy. So the first one is uh, I'll talk about is House Bill 541, the Tax Abatement Reduction. And what the tax abatement reduction uh, or the tax abatement itself is about is that utility-scale solar uh, projects receive an 80% abatement of their property taxes. And that sounds like a pretty good deal, but it's important to understand exactly what's being talked about here. One, it's the uh, 80% abatement on the equipment that's in a solar farm, not on the land uh, that it sits on. And... The other thing is that when you look, and, and we have looked at what happens to property tax collections in counties uh, when there's solar development there, what you find is that the it's, uh, solar development has been a huge boon to counties in terms of uh, providing uh, broadening their property tax base and providing, you know, particularly for education and that kind of thing. The Other thing is that people sometimes say, well, gosh, if you just reduce that abatement to 50%, then you'd have that much more money for uh, schools. But the reality is that what would happen if you reduced it is you would not get those utility-scale solar projects. And so it's not a choice between the amount that you've collected and more. It's a choice between the amount that you've collected and zero additional property taxes. So that's why this... Uh, attack is not only bad for the uh, solar industry, but also bad for the counties that have benefited from having solar develop- development in their counties.
0: House Bill 551, did it move anywhere this session?
2: No, it did not. It sits in house rules, and the there are a number of technical uh, challenges in that you cannot uh, tax similarly situated taxpayers, uh, differently. So that's a problem to be gotten around if you're going to take away that abatement, particularly on people that are already uh, have that abatement. Uh, And then there's also uh, recognition among uh, individual members in both caucuses that uh, the development coming from the solar industry has been a boon to their property tax base.
0: So not likely to go anywhere, and we're happy about that. Exactly. What about House Bill 543 and House Bill 726? I know those deal with the reps. Can you briefly go over what the reps are and and why these would have sought to change them?
2: Yes, both these bills uh, would, in one case, reduce, and in the other case, repeal renewable energy portfolio standards, which is one of the bills uh, that back in the uh, aughts, we, North Carolina Sustainable Energy and its uh, allies worked to get adopted in North Carolina, and it's one of the flagship uh, clean energy uh, statutes in North Carolina. What the REPS did is it required that 12.5% of the energy portfolio be generated by either renewable energy or energy efficiency. The uh, REPS was a critical foundational statute uh, a lot of other things had to come along to really uh, create the boom in uh, renewable energy that we've seen. But the REPS has been the sort of we're open for business uh, statute. And so the uh, members have opposed the REPS largely on a uh, ideological basis because it was a mandate from uh, state government that uh, the utilities get their energy in a specific way. Now, that that is true, and what we have seen is that that was a wise uh, policy on the part of state government because the reps, along with other uh, policies that uh, promoted the adoption of renewable energy, have resulted in the uh, cost of solar, for example, uh, just going through the uh, floor to the point where it's now, especially solar uh, combined with storage, is now competitive with conventional uh, sources of energy. So these bills are typical of the attacks that we've seen in the past where uh, on ideological grounds, members have sought to undercut the renewable energy portfolio standard uh, kind of from a libertarian perspective. But uh, luckily, uh, we've been able to... uh, Show that uh, the the benefit of renewable energy, and uh, persuade the uh, General Assembly not to move these pieces of legislation.
0: So another win for clean energy. Yeah, I mean these. I mean they're not good. They're not good pieces of legislation for clean energy. But the fact that they didn't go anywhere, I think, is a good sign for the industry.
2: And it's not unusual uh, for in the clean energy uh, policy area for a lot of the work to be done. Uh, that has to be done is uh defense and educating and explaining to uh members and uh having their constituents uh contact them to let them know why why specific pieces of legislation are bad uh for renewable energy or bad for ratepayers uh so that's that's an important part of uh the work that uh I be frank and confess causes me to leave, lose sleep uh, fairly frequently <laughs>
0: We played a lot of defense this session, and we are successful in stopping the bills that you were just talking about, but none of those were the largest threat to clean energy this session. Tom, can you walk us through what happened with Senate Bill 377? And I I do want to say to our listeners, if you remember, we covered this bill while it was going through the General Assembly, but we're going to give an overview here to refresh, refresh your memory. So, Tom, can you walk us through Senate Bill 377?
2: Senate Bill 377 uh, was a bill that the uh, it followed up on a 18 month moratorium that was passed a couple of years ago, uh, and many uh, members were assured that that 18 month moratorium would be uh, the the last of uh, anti wind legislation. But uh, this session, uh, we saw uh, Senator Harry Brown. Uh, introduce uh, Senate Bill 377, and there was a lot of uh, uncertainty and unknowns around this bill, but the fundamental thing was that uh, there was a set of maps uh, drawn that laid out whole areas of the state, touching as many as 66 counties, where either wind would not be allowed at all or it would be subject to a great deal of scrutiny. Uh, It's important to uh, realize that uh, this legislation would be piling on on top of an already rigorous regulatory uh, structure that we have in place. Uh, At the state level, North Carolina has the most rigorous wind permitting program in the country. At the federal level, the Department of Defense has a clearinghouse which vets all wind projects, uh, before they, you know, the first uh, uh, concrete is poured, to, and to analyze what kind of impact they're going to have on any military operations or training that occurs uh, anywhere around them, and so an example of the existing uh, wind farm up in the northeastern part of the state, when as it went through the uh, Department of Defense clearinghouse process. The number of turbines and where they were located were uh, changed, a smaller number of turbines located in slightly different positions. So that process already works. And uh, Senate Bill 377 would be redundant. It created a great deal of uncertainty and was Really, in our opinion, overkill in terms of the sheer amount of uh, geography, particularly in the eastern part of the state, that it would simply exclude from wind development, and that's important because uh, while there's military bases and uh, military aviation training there, the eastern part of the state is also in places where appropriate. Uh, one of our uh, most important resources as far as onshore wind uh, energy goes the other uh, critical resource uh, being offshore wind so uh, the legislation uh, was w- run through the uh, Senate uh, with uh, and without changes it and got to the house there was an uh, effort that ongoing between uh, the House uh, leadership and uh, some senators that were uh, sympathetic with the aims of uh, Senate Bill 377 to protect uh, the military bases in eastern North Carolina, but also uh, uh, sensitive to the need to allow for other industries to develop when they didn't interfere. Uh, That uh, compromise was agreed upon, but uh, after it was discussed in a committee in the House, uh, Senator Brown announced that he would not support that, and so as a result of that, the bill went uh, to House Rules uh, and uh, has not moved since. And we don't expect it to move. Now it's entirely possible that some other legislation may uh, arise that uh, uh, from Senator Brown or others that uh, would burden uh, wind development, uh, but that particular bill seems to be safely uh, resting in uh, house rules.
0: Great. And would you say that that is another point for the home team?
2: Yes, it is. And let me tell you, the thing that I live by, my motto is it's better lucky than smart. So there were some, some... dynamics uh, between individual members of the general Assembly that I'm not going to share uh, because it would be impolitic of me to do so <laughs> but it, that was a, of course a big help to us but you got to do your job and you got to be lucky well we were both this we were both this time around yeah that's correct
0: well we made it through playing a lot of defense we had some victories and what about energy storage, Tom, that's an emerging technology that really needs support from uh, private industry, from our legislature. What happened with energy storage this session?
2: Well, just to cite one example, Senate Bill 510, uh, the truth is, is that there was no uh, policies adopted that would promote uh, storage. Storage, of course, uh, has tremendous promise because with uh, renewable energy, particularly wind and solar, the main criticism that's leveled at those sources of energy is that they're intermittent and therefore unreliable. Now that's an oversimplification. if you have enough uh, renewables on the grid, then you can manage them in such a way that they become reliable. but nonetheless, it's a uh, you know it's a criticism that's made, and the silver bullet uh, for uh, intermittent sources of energy is uh, energy storage. Energy storage technology is developing rapidly even as we speak. And so the challenge is is to get the technology to be more powerful all the time, get the price down. But then there's, of course, also uh, the state regulatory process, which has an impact on how quickly uh, technology can be deployed. And in the case of uh, Senate Bill 510, what that bill did was it said that if you've got an existing solar farm, that you could add storage to it, without having to have that store that storage those batteries treated as a separate uh, uh, energy producing facility. And the reason that that's important is every separate uh, energy producing uh, facility has to go through the interconnection process which is a series of screens and bureaucratic processes which take a lot of time um, and are not necessary in the case of uh, storage because what storage does is simply take a uh, solar uh, project that's already been through that process and makes it more valuable by allowing it uh, to store energy and therefore be available more hours of the day in order to provide uh, electricity to people how did this bill fare this session it uh wound up going to senate rules and it was a senate bill so what that means is that in effect it uh did not get off the uh, launch pad it's a uh energy storage everybody understands its promise uh it's the object of tremendous contention because it will change the landscape around renewable energy uh if it becomes uh, easy to adopt. on When it uh, becomes easy to when adopt. When it becomes easy to adopt. Uh, and so, you know, that we continue to advocate for uh, better uh, regulatory environment for storage and particularly addition of uh, storage to these existing farms. It, it will increase their value as assets uh, not just to the people that own them, but also to the people of North Carolina, the ratepayers of North carolina and one of the really interesting things that uh, i've learned about storage is that storage doesn't just make renewable energy like solar and wind uh, more efficient, but it actually can be used if you uh, parse it down to the milliseconds it can be used to make even conventional sources of energy more efficient so Storage is something which is in our future. And uh, the key is to have policy uh, catch up to uh, the technology so that it can be deployed.
1: have it folks the 14th episode of the squeaky clean energy podcast
0: bring in the latest in clean energy right to your ears yes sir and you brought the correct name to our ears Jarvis you said (laughs) you said the name correctly that's definitely the
1: goal I mean I truly see growth as a person (laughs) (laughs) every day you learn more every day sure do (laughs) (laughs) so Jarvis Give us a quick recap of this episode. So just a quick recap of uh, today's episode. There were quite a few victories, actually, this session, as well as some anti-clean energy bills that were stopped. Uh, But you'll definitely have to stay tuned uh, for part two to get the complete download. Um, So far, so good. But we're saving the biggest energy bill. Senate Bill 559 for last.
0: Yes, that is was the main event for most of this session. So listen to part two if you want to catch our coverage of Senate Bill 559. And Tom is just a total pro. A seasoned pro. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, stay tuned for that episode. Part two is coming up. Thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast and have a great day.